Welcome back to Squatch Ranger Files, episode 46. On this episode, I'm going to interview Troy Hudson of the Native Oklahoma Bigfoot Research Organization, or No Bro, as we like to call it. But first, a couple of announcements. We've expanded the show to the Anchor platform, and we are so excited to be here. Anchor helps the show reach Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and many more. We hope to grow our audience, and we are able to continue to bring you the latest Bigfoot reports from around the country. If you are a new listener to the show, welcome. You are now an official Squatch Ranger. Your duties include have an open mind, ask questions, trust but confirm, and always seek the truth. Thanks for joining the show. Now, real quick, I want to talk about a... YouTube video on my YouTube channel, Squatch Ranger, I have a video that's called North Canadian River Project Area 3. It's an older video. In fact, we're coming up on the one-year mark since the NCRP caught thermal footage of a possible Bigfoot and maybe even a baby. Back in March of 2020, Kurt Stanley our lead investigator of the North Canadian River Project, caught two creatures and even a raccoon on film. So please go check out this video. Go check out the thermal footage in that YouTube video. Kurt did a great job on that weekend expedition. There was two subjects in the frame, and one of the subjects, it had something on its shoulder. looked like something was bopping around, like maybe a, a baby's head was bopping up and down, like it was holding... A tinier creature. So one of our theories that we're throwing out there is maybe 
this creature in the film was holding a baby. So yeah, you want to go check that out. And as of late, Kurt has enhanced a still shot from that footage and he got a side profile of one of the creatures and you can really see the shape of its head and it even looks pretty conical in head shape. It's pretty amazing. So please go check that out. It's a great video on my YouTube channel. Once again, that's called North Canadian River Project Area 3. On an upcoming episode, I would like to share my inspiration that sparked my curiosity in Bigfoot and Sasquatch, this whole phenomenon of Bigfoot Sasquatch. And one of the names, one of the people out there, his name is Jimmy Chilcutt. And it was his testimony on a Bigfoot documentary that I saw many, many years ago. His testimony on Bigfoot tracks with dermal ridges that really sparked my curiosity and got my interest going. So I'd like to talk about that and discuss that more in depth on an upcoming episode. But now it's time to bring in our guest for Squatch Ranger Files episode 46. And we now have our guest with us this evening on Squatch Ranger Files. He's the voice in the theme music. He has a sound bite. He says there's 77 counties in Oklahoma, and I can report I can put reports in 66 counties. This is Troy Hudson of the Native Oklahoma Bigfoot Research Organization. Troy, how are you doing this evening? Good, sir. How you do? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, being a part of the Squatch Ranger Files. So, go ahead. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah. So let's go ahead and uh, let's. I want to give. I want to. I want to give you the opportunity to speak to the audience and kind of give a quick little introduction of yourself. Just a quick little background. Uh, it can be as long or short as you want, and then we'll jump into questions. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Troy. Well, I'll keep it short. Um, <laughs> I was born and raised in southeast Oklahoma. Um, I uh, grew up uh, spending my time outdoors. I was wanting to be in the military, so I spent just about every waking hour on a weekend during the summer in the woods uh, with friends. And... Um, we heard strange things, but I also heard things growing up from uh, a lot of the people that I lived in the community. The community I lived in uh, was uh, mixed between uh, native uh, Creek uh, citizens and uh, Caucasian citizens. And I spent a lot of time uh, in tribal communities growing up and hearing stories, but just never really paid any attention to it until... My adult years as I got into law enforcement and spent, I'm going on about 30 years of combined law enforcement and military and got into the the Bigfoot uh, investigative research uh, phenomenon back in early 2004. Okay, wow. Or now. Wow, okay. You have some, a great background there. And I just can't wait to dive in and get more info from you during this episode. So this leads into the first question. You, you helped form this group called the Native Oklahoma Bigfoot Research Organization. Why the name Native Oklahoma Bigfoot Research Organization? Well, um, I was working as emergency management in Cole County. And same time, 
you know, we had the Honolulu Bigfoot uh, conference festival and conference going on. We had a school scholarship program uh, there in Honolulu, and some of the local uh, community uh, partners I had there with emergency management and the school system there at Colgate Schools was thinking about doing something similar with a school scholarship program. And I was speaking, I was also traveling around speaking, and you know, we had about three or four of us that were doing some, you know, part-time investigations in and around the area and everywhere we were at. And people would always ask, what was the name of our group? Well, we didn't have a name of the group. It was just, it was a bunch of friends. Uh, and I was speaking and the questions kept coming around about what's the name of our group. Well, when we decided that we were going to formalize the school scholarship program there in Cole County, as well as some of the other events that we were participating in, we decided that we just going to have to break down and come up with a name. Well, at that moment, at that time, all of us uh, come from tribal background, come from tribal citizenship. And so we thought, well, we got to have the word Oklahoma in it because we're in Oklahoma. And we're all from Oklahoma and tribal or native, because that's basically who we are. And that's where we spend most of our, our attention towards native stories, kind of keeping the traditions, the legends alive. So that's how we just basically came up with the native Oklahoma Bigfoot research organization. And that's kind of where that started. That was about, about 2015, 2016 timeframe. Very good. Very good. I love that you have the native aspect to the group. I, I really think that's important. And, and I think that's a great thing that you guys are doing and what you're all about. And, um, and I don't think you have to be native to get into the group now. Is that correct? That is correct. We're, we have around, we have about 12 members of mixed. Um, not everybody is native. You don't have to be native to join. That's just how the name got started in the beginning. But, but we, we take people from all walks of life. I mean, we have, but we do have a lot of tribes representative. I mean, we have uh, the Cherokee, the Choctaw, uh, the Cheyenne, the Creek. Um, so we have, we have Navajo. Uh, so we, we come from a mixed uh, background. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. So I want to throw this out here. I know you go to Honubby a lot. You spend a lot of time in Honubby, Oklahoma. That's where the conference is. And we're going to get into that here in a little bit. But other than Honubby, for the listeners out there, are there any other known hot spots in southeast Oklahoma for Sasquatch activity? Well, like, jokingly, but it's actually true, one of the things I say is if you put a map of Oklahoma up on a wall and you start throwing a dart, anywhere that dart lands is pretty much going to be within very close proximity of a sighting or activity that we all personally know of. You know, we have the state split up into four quadrants, the Northeast, Northwest, Southwest, and Southeast. And we have investigators that kind of cover, such as yourself, that covers all those areas. And we all each have an area of responsibility and area of expertise in those areas. And I, I mean, it'd be just, just, you name a spot. I mean, you know, like I said, there's, you know, I'd, I'd say there's about six, six counties, but those are starting to grow now. I mean, even out northwest Oklahoma, there's been reports of sightings and activity going on. There's probably I can probably count the counties that don't have activity, which would be the panhandle 
of, uh, and there may be, we just haven't heard of them, but it, it's, uh, it's <laughs> anywhere in Oklahoma at the moment. Wow. Yes. That's, that's amazing. And, uh, I agree. Oklahoma has so many sightings and, you know, who knows, like you said about the panhandle, maybe, uh, getting out there towards Colorado, uh, Colorado, Oklahoma state lines there, maybe, maybe they're out there. Who knows? Um, and like, uh, you've said before, I've heard you say before, there's people that have had sightings and they just don't report it. And so people like us just never know about it. That's correct. That is correct. You would, you would pretty much say one out of every three sightings, um, you know, well, I mean, that's kind of a hard ratio to go by, but I would say, I would say probably three out of five sightings probably do not go reported. That's just probably a better way to describe it. Wow. Okay. I want to, I want to jump into the, the conference. Um, I was personally affected by this. Uh, Well, I'm going to say I was personally disappointed, but I understand why we didn't have the conference back in the fall of 2020. We didn't have the, the Honubby Bigfoot conference. Uh, is there any latest news on the Honubby Bigfoot Festival and conference for next year? Is it looking like it's projected that we we will have the conference? You are the man to talk to. What what can you tell us and share with us about the conference coming up? Maybe possibly next fall. We are planning. We're moving forward. Um, we're planning right now as if we are going to have it, and that's the plans. We are having it. Um, at the moment, I mean, that's exactly where we're working towards. Of course, we are many, many months out, but we are planning to go forward with it. I mean, there's we, there's no discussion of not having it. I mean, we are having discussions of, of having it. So, I mean, that's, that's where we are right now. Okay, great news, great news. Like I said, I, I understand COVID hit, and I understand, you know, we want to keep everyone safe and we're social distancing and we're canceling a lot of things going on out there in the, in the world. But also um, right now things are starting to open back up in a lot of areas, whether we agree with it or not. And, and so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to that conference next year. And I, I hope it, uh, hope it pulls through and that we get to meet together again and talk about some Sasquatch. Uh, um, I agree. I agree. Now I understand because I know, you lead some expeditions, some Bigfoot expeditions on the weekends. So like th- throughout the year, maybe um, when it's not the Honubi conference, you have these things called the Kaimichi Mountains Adventures. What Tell the audience, what is the Kaimichi Mountains Adventures? Well, the Kaimichi Mountain Adventures, um, the name of that was kind of born back in around 2014. Um, I've been providing expeditions earlier uh, back in the days when I was actually with the BFRO, I led their expeditions in Oklahoma, Texas, and Arkansas. And when I left, the expeditions kept on going, but they were just kind of us hanging out. And we were getting a lot of uh, questions on Facebook, and, and I was getting a lot of emails about people wanting to come out and join us. And we were starting to get, you know, a few larger groups, you know, 10, 15 people. And it became a little bit of a financial struggle um, where myself and some of the other guys involved were putting money out from our pockets. And with a little bit of the liability it takes with part of doing expeditions, um, 
you know, some of the guys approached me and said that we just, I mean, we're going to have to, we're going to have to start charging us because we just can't keep doing it with money out of our own pocket. It became very expensive. So we struggled with a fee. What would, what would be a reasonable, um, at the same time, I had a lot of people in the, in the, in the big fit, Bigfoot field telling me that, you know, a lot of people are also coming for our knowledge. They're also coming for, to learn from us. So <clears throat> like anything, and I am nowhere near an expert, but you know, along with everything, you know, you're providing that knowledge that we've acquired over the years and like anything else, you know, reference to a lot of the other Bigfoot organizations that do organize field expeditions, you have to pay. Um, you have to pay because there's a, there's a little bit of a cost there with the uh, organization on the operation of a expedition. And when we had partnered with the uh, staff in the leadership at Christ 40 Acres, um, they allowed us to use the buildings, the dorms, the cabins, the kitchen, and the amenities that, that the property has. And then that kind of grew into us deciding what the fee was going to be. And then at the same time, Another, another, you know, question pop up. What's the name of these expeditions? Is it the, is it the native Oklahoma Bigfoot research organization expeditions? But we also found that when we do the expeditions, it's not just the Bigfoot people get to come and enjoy the going out in the mountains and, you know, uh, people bring their four wheelers and their ATVs. And it became a little bit of an adventure because we were going up into the mountains and going through a little bit of rough terrain and, you know, people, you know, we see bear tracks and, and, you know, there's been one time we had a mountain lion spotted on one of the expeditions. So it became a little bit of an adventure. That's why we decided that we would call it the Kaimichi mountain, you know, the, the adventures, because it was an adventure other than the fact that people were there for Bigfoot. It's grown into a very popular um, event. You know, at one time we would have, you know, seven or eight of them a year. But due to my job and due to the other staff that, that participates, you know, their time is critical with their job, too. So with the recent years of everything going on with COVID and the weather and everything, we've had to kind of cut some of those expeditions short in a sense of, you know, uh, rescheduling them and everything. So we hope this year that we will get back into a full swing of a schedule of having them again. Um the activity is still there. I mean, myself and some of the other guys, part of the organization, were there, you know, twice a month. Sometimes we're there, you know, three times a month, and the activity is still there. I mean, there's still stuff going on. We had an expedition back in December, and it was a very enjoyable uh, <laughs> weekend. A lot of stuff happened. A lot of people got to see some strange things, and so we, uh, we're looking forward to 2021. So let me ask you, what makes your expeditions different and stand out from other expeditions that people could go on? Well, as I said, I was the organizer for the BFRO expeditions um, back in the mid-2000s. And my knowledge of all the other expeditions that are um, out there from different organizations. And what is unique is <clears throat> a lot of the... Bigfoot expeditions, you have to bring your own tent, you have to bring your own food, uh, you have to haul in your own water, um, you pay a fee, 
and you pretty much are out in the elements. Now, what is unique is we have found over the years that people enjoy coming to an expedition that they don't have to worry about anything. All they need to do is show up. We have, um, you know, we have dorms and, and cabins that people stay in. They have running water. They can take a shower, sleep in a nice bed. Um, we cook, you know, for the attendees on Saturday, uh, lunch and dinner. And the amount of activity that occurs on our expedition, not throwing all the other expedition organizations, you know, under the bus, but we have a very good ratio. We have a lot of people that's come on expeditions that has got to see what they came for. Um, you know, a lot of people probably come in the beginning thinking that maybe we have people in the woods uh, doing sounds and whatnot, but they find out very quickly um, that we're all together. There is nobody out there playing games, and they, they go away very happy. We have a lot of people that return. What is the unique part of the expedition is we share what we know. I mean, we've just recently started actually providing uh, classes when people come on expedition during the day, we provide uh, tracking classes, uh, foot cast, you know, how to make cast. Uh, Jim Mordecai, you know, presents that class. Uh, how to photography, you know, if, you know, that's your expertise. You know, you, you help provide what's the best way to do photography, videoing, even when you're interviewing a witness. You know, we provide that information. So the uniqueness is, is you, when you come on one of our expeditions is, you are looking at getting a little bit more than what you would pay for on any of the other expeditions with the education, the activity, and all you have to worry about is just showing up and having a good time. You know, we're cooking for you. Um, we're taking you out to some locations. And at the same time, like we tell everybody in the beginning, there's no guarantees what's going to happen, but with the statistics of what's happened in all the past of all the other expeditions, we don't ever promise anything, but the, I guess you could say the Bigfoots, they provide, they provide some, some great activity. There's been a lot of stuff happen. There's been a lot of people has seen them even in the daytime on our expeditions. Um, and a lot of crazy stuff happens at night. So, uh, I guess that's probably, I guess that's probably the best way I can describe it. And I will, uh, I'm going to go ahead and tell the audience right now. I've been on several of the expeditions with Troy, and it is so fun. The food is great. The chef is great. Um, also, talking about the activity, my second expedition out, Troy and I actually had an experience where we might have had a possible bluff charge. And we won't get into all the details about that because we've told this before. But for the audience listening right now, yes, we, we might have had a possible bluff charge in the middle of the night. You can comment if you want. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, again, that's why we put the word adventures at the end of the name of the expeditions, because you never know what's going to happen. There's you, you have to always have your head on a swivel. You always have to be paying attention because, you know, you could go for 40 minutes or an hour of nothing happening and all of a sudden in a blink of an eye. We have all kinds of stuff, you know, some people refer to as all heck breaks, breaks loose. I mean, we, uh, a couple expeditions back, um, I've never heard 11 tree knocks in a row. And one night we had 11 tree knocks 
less than probably a hundred yards from us. Um, and we knocked back and they knocked or he or she or whatever, they knocked back, but 11 tree knocks in a row. That's first for me. So there's a lot of stuff that happens. that It's always a first for me on these. Wow. Okay. So you heard it folks. If you want to go on an expedition in Southeast Oklahoma, you need to find the uh, Kaimichi mountains adventures, Facebook page and contact them. All right. I want to talk about the Honubi Bigfoot conference a few years ago. I can't remember exactly what year it was. I thought it was 2018, but a couple of days prior to the conference, some footprints nearby the, the grounds on the grounds uh, where the conference is held was discovered. We found some footprints. So I didn't, I wasn't there, but, but you were, you were led to these footprints. Can you comment and tell us the whole experience of, the discovery of these footprints just days before the conference at Honubi. Yes. So we had been, you know, coming down to Honubi in the summertime. We go down and go swimming in the river and some of the guys go fishing. And, you know, it's really hot. There's not a lot of stuff that goes on. You know, we merely come down just to hang out and have some camaraderie. And, you know, we know a lot of people in Honubi. I know a lot of people. I've known a lot of people there over the years. And there's a lot of friends. And we'll go down just to visit with them and hang out. You know, we're, you know, if we have Bigfoot activity, that makes the, the weekend all the better. But a lot of times we're down there just to hang out because of the environment. You know, I, I spent a lot of time in that area as a kid, so it, it's kind of home to me. And we didn't have much activity that summer. And I think it was the day before or two days before. I think it was the day before the conference. We were there on property, Mordecai, and we were getting things set up and one of the young men that, that works there at the property, he, he's kind of a maintenance. He takes care of the property. And he was down checking some of his hog traps. And it came up top. This is down below, but down where we do the expeditions. Now, not very many people, hardly anybody's on property at that moment, at that time. Nobody's been down below because basically a lot of the vendors are starting to arrive, but they don't down down below. They're just, they you know, they just don't leave property. And... He came up and on this four-wheeler and he found me over there by the office and he said, Hey, I need you to come take a look at this. I found some tracks down here in the mud that don't look right. So we went down there and, and there's a, it's a mud hole. That's kind of always muddy. Uh, even during the summertime, it, it might dry up, but it, it, but water stands in it most of the time through the year. And it's right on the main trail. And when he brought me down there and I got off the four-wheeler and I looked at the track, it was just, I, I mean, it was just a shocker because the size of the foot, the angle of, of the way the toes are, the, the mid-tarsal brain, I mean, just the, everything about it was a no-brainer. It was not a human foot. And I turned to look at him and I said, <laughs> congratulations, there's your first big foot. And he goes, wait a minute, there's another one right there. And there was another half print off just just above it whoever it was had came across that trail stepped in it stepped over but it doesn't stop there you could actually follow it where it goes off into the woods and down oh i don't know probably about a hundred and i don't know about 120 yards there's a sandy area down by the picnic table that goes down to the to the river and there were more tracks in the sand down there so it was the same this we we figured this individual was ought to get with Mordecai, but I wouldn't say that 
he was probably well over nine feet tall due to the size of the tracks. Mordecai, Mordecai arrived. Wow. I had told him. He got the casting material. We went down and, and casted it. The pictures are on our Facebook page. Um, but it was a uh, it was a very large print. I think it was over uh, – help me if I'm wrong, Ryan. Was it over 16 inches, I think, I believe? Yeah, I believe that's right around where it was, yeah. yes. So very – they're they impressive are very tracks. impressive. And those are the first real good tracks that we have ever found on that property. That is amazing. I hope that, you know, in the future we find more. That is just such a cool, cool experience. So like he said, folks out there, if you want to see some pictures of the tracks, go to what the native Oklahoma Bigfoot Facebook page. Is that where yes. they'll find the pictures? Okay. Yeah. Go, go there and click on photos and, and scroll through until you find some footprint tracks and you'll, you'll see them there. They were impressive. And we also uh, present the casts at some of our, some of our um, public speaking events. And we'll get into that here a little bit later, but right now I want to dive into a little segment that I like to do with the guests. I like to read a random Bigfoot report that's been reported and get the guests reaction so you might have heard this report before, maybe not. I don't know. I just like to get the guest reaction of what they think hearing the report. So this Bigfoot report comes from Muskogee County. I, and by the okay. way, I took this report. And it was at Haskell Lake in 1990. And I do know this eyewitness personally. Okay. So a group of teenagers, 1990, a group of teenagers went out to a popular hangout spot late one night between 10 and 11 o'clock. The road they were on was actually the dam of the lake. One side was water and the other side is a very, very steep drop off into a wooded area. As they were driving across the dam, a very large black figure ran up from the side of the steep incline. The figure was at full speed and it ran into the side of the Chevy pickup breaking the rearview mirror. The driver kept describing how it would be impossible for a human to be running with that much speed up an incline and up uh, and that steep of an incline with that much force. The group departed the area and went back into town and they kind of collected their thoughts. They decided to return the air to the area. So they drive back and forth for about an hour across the dam and they never saw the figure again. The driver returned the next day to look for any signs and found none. Once again, he couldn't understand how something could be running up the incline with that much speed and force and strike his truck as it did. So I want to get your reaction like, uh, you know, the power of these things, um, you know, what's described, you know, how powerful they are. You know, how, how could something run up an incline like that? What's your reaction um, to this report? What was it? Did they describe the speed at which they were driving? I think it was, I, it wasn't fast. I, no, I don't know exactly how fast they were going, but um, it probably wasn't super fast. It was probably a medium little cruise. So probably maybe about 10, 10, 12 miles an hour, maybe. Yeah, let's, let's say, uh, well, yeah, right in that range. Think about a human. Let's say, for instance, a human did that out of, trying to scare them or or to do whatever would be in a, a human's mind of doing something like that 
for some, for a human to even come at it from a straight shot, say it wasn't a uh, uh, up, up steep uh, steep grade going upwards, let's just say it was a flat ground. Even someone that would run into the side of a pickup truck and break the mirror, that person would have probably some sort of injury of some type, a shoulder, a facial, you know, an arm, a hand, some type of injury they would sustain from running into a side of a, a, a vehicle that's moving. Even five or 10 miles an hour, they're going to sustain some sort of injury. And you would think that if it was a human wearing a costume or just wearing all black, as soon as they strike the vehicle, they're going to go, they're going to fall to the ground. They're probably going to yell out or scream or moan or cuss or something. So it's interesting. Um, and I've heard reports like this before where someone's driving down a dark, very narrow road and have something come out of the trees, smashing the side of a vehicle thinking it was a deer. And, you know, this is, you know, this is not the only case I've heard similar to this, but I would think that the location where they were at, at nighttime, you know, there's no way to know what's on the, in the mindset of a Bigfoot of why they would do something other than probably it disturbed him or her in some fashion. Maybe he or she was hunting or I don't know. It sounded like it was aggravated and wanted those people to leave. So it decided to come up the side of that hill and smash into the side of their truck because obviously they left. Is that correct? So, yes, they left. <laughs> it, it's interesting. Um, but again, you know, this I've, I've heard similar reports like this through the years. Um, and for them to do damage to a vehicle and then take off and, you know, never be seen. It's just interesting because the power of them, you know, I've heard reports of them, you know, somebody was broke down on an old, old county road or an old timber road. And, they'll, you know, they'll, somebody will go to get help and somebody will stay with the vehicle. You know, I've heard them even say that, you know, they've heard the growling and the back of a vehicle be picked up and moved over and set down. So you can imagine the strength at which, you know, one of these guys, you know, I say guys, you know, one of these things have is enormous. So it's, it's, it's not to be taken lightly. They're, they're definitely not something to be, uh, shooting at or, or trying to, uh, you take action against because their, their strength alone and speed alone is, is you're not going to be able to survive that encounter. If, if somebody ever were to try to think that they're going to take one of these, uh, you know, to prove a point for science, it's just not, it's just not well advised. Right, right. I was just I was just super impressed about the speed running up the incline of that report and how much power it would actually take for anything to, to be able to do that. So yeah, thank you for your thoughts on that. And uh, now I wanna I wanna transition over and let's talk about some tribal stuff here because uh, native is in, in your name of, of your organization. So I want to know, uh, what has been your involvement in working with tribes around Oklahoma? Well, I got started several years ago with my connections. Um, I used to work for the Choctaw Nation, um, the public safety department for tribal, for Choctaw Tribal. And through there and through some of the other contacts I've had over the years, I've taken reports. One of the things I learned a long time ago, uh, 
you know, kind of being involved. I've, I've been to a, back around 2013, 14, I went to a couple powwows, um, one up north and then one over in Tallahena. And I was introduced to uh, some elders that uh, someone had said that I had, you know, experience and some elders had questions for me and I talked to the elders and it just kind of grew from there. I've, I have spoken uh, at, at some Creek Nation events, um, the uh, Delaware Nation out in Anadarko, I've spoke there. Um, I spoke uh, in Oklahoma City. Uh, I've actually even spoke up in Wisconsin. I was invited to go to Wisconsin to speak at the Mohican tribe uh, a couple years ago. And uh, there's, there's a lot of communities that have things happen in the tribal sense, because there's a lot of tribal communities that are just predominantly uh, tribal citizens. And sometimes they are reluctant to talk to outsiders, outsiders being people not from the tribe or from the family. A lot of communities is family-based, especially up in the Cherokee Nation. You have certain townships that, you know, once you get in there and start meeting everybody, you find out everybody's related to everybody. And it's just through my my contacts. Uh, at the same time, it's also I know tribal customs. So when you go to speak to tribal elders or you're invited to speak, there are certain customs that you perform when you go to meet an elder or meet a, a person of, of, of certain leadership. And through that, over the years, my name's kind of gotten around where a lot of people... I guess they, I guess you'd say name drop and I'll be invited to speak or to go and to speak with elders and just with my own, you know, my family, my cousin on his side, because there's just a lot of things that once people get to know your name, they invite you because they find out that you understand where they are coming from. You understand uh, confidentiality is, it's very held and very, um, a lot of stuff that happens is private on tribal land. And I've just gotten to the point now where I, I, I collect a lot of information and I'm there to help those communities. At the same time, my connection with the DNA project, there's a lot of stuff that I also act on behalf of the DNA project with some of the tribal communities. Can you, can you tell us, maybe one or two of your, some of your favorite tribal stories passed down from na native tribes that are Bigfoot related. Do you have any stories that are tribal stories that yeah. you could share? Um, I'm trying to think of one that stands out. Well, one of the, one of the times back in 2010, I had the privilege to visit the Ponca nation and became a good friend with, with Pete, Pete Buffalo head. And one of the stories that they shared with the Ponca uh, nation at one time, the Lakota Sioux and all them were one nation, just like some of the other nations have, you know, had separated through the years, through the generations. Cause you know, the Muscogean family, you know, the five civilized tribes, you know, the Seminole, the Creek, the Choctaw, the Chickasaw. And the Ponca described that where they came from up North, the, the 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 plains up in the north the, the dakotas <clears throat> that uh when they came down to oklahoma the 
big brother is what they refer to, you know, Bigfoot as big brother. They watch out for them and they uh, described that they came with them, traveled with them. But I've heard other stories from other nations that same thing when some of the, I've heard from some of the Choctaws when they were part of the removal from the Mississippi area that those Bigfoots actually came with them, followed them over to the Indian Territory, which is now Oklahoma. The probably the most interesting aspects of some of the tribe was how well they look at them in in respect to the sense of a lot of the names that's used tends to translate to Big Brother or the men, the, the people, the tall people of the woods, because they don't fear them. They respect them. They allow them to have their areas and they don't tread into their areas at the same time. In some regards, the Bigfoots don't come into their areas, but we know sometimes that's not true. Um, there's a lot of tribal stories where a, a young uh, boy will, will be down by the river or down by the creek and will fall into the creek and something will pull them out of the creek. Now, they're like, he'll lose footing and fall into the creek and, and in a sense is starting to drown because he can't swim very well because the swiftness of the water a hand will reach down and grab him and pull them out onto the bank. And when the young boy will look up and it was, and it's a Bigfoot, obviously the Bigfoot saved the boy. So there's a couple of stories that are similar to that. And that's why they refer to them as big brother, because they always, they're always watching out for them. That is so cool. That is so interesting. And, and how you described how the Bigfoot, moved along with the tribes when they were when they were move, moving land there's like a there must be a trust and a huge i mean just a deep connection there between the bigfoot and the tribes that's just amazing the one of the people you know people ask me a lot what's the connection between native americans and bigfoot well about the only way i can sum that up in is native people are a lot more spiritual in a sense not all native people are but in, you know, in the old days, a lot of, you know, those generation of Native people, they're, they're a lot more spiritual, and they tend to respect the land. They tend to respect what Mother Nature is. They, they tend to respect what the, the great creator, you know, God. Um, and, you know, in, their, in a lot of tribes, they have names for God that refers to the great spirit. <clears throat> Excuse me. And... um. So it's a sense that because Bigfoot, you know, in some beliefs is a spiritual being and they think that in my mind, there's probably a connection there between what the native people are in a sense of where they've come from through the generations of, of being very spiritual and respecting the land. That's maybe where some of that connection comes in because it is believed that Bigfoot can read your heart. They can understand very, very uh, in tune with, with who you are, perception. So, you know, there's really no good answers, but I just think that it's merely the spiritual connection. Wow. Okay, can you, can you tell me any tribe, native tribes, uh, if, any, if any native tribes in or around Oklahoma have special names for Bigfoot, well, Sasquatch-type um, creatures? The Creek Nation have several names for them. 
the Seminole do the, the Seminole. I, 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 you know, at the moment I can't really pronounce it quite well, but the English translation means they can stand in front of you and you can't see them. Uh, some names also means to forget because when someone sees the Bigfoot, they come across them in the woods. They forget where they are. They forget time and space and they forget what happened. And it's many years later when they remember what had happened. So, uh, you know, the, um, uh, you know, Choctaw, the, the Skinik, and, and some refer to as a Shampe, um, the, uh, you know, the Lakota have different names. Um, some of them are good. Some of them are not good. Sometimes... You know, in, in some of the tribes, especially up north with the Lakota Sioux uh, language, um, they refer to it as a, a wanache, is, means a dark spirit, not meaning dark spirits and bad because they, they're in the dark. I mean, they're, they, they, they're always in the dark. They're always standing in the shadows. So there's various names. Some are good. Some are bad. Um, you know, the, each, each tribe has a name for them. And some of them were kind of hard to pronounce, but majority of all of them refer to them as another tribe of people, uh, big man, big brother. You know, they refer to them as another tribe. They're not referring to them as an animal. They're not referring to them as something from outer space. They're just another form of people that live on the earth just as we do. They just don't live in the environment that we are. They don't need technology. They don't need cars. They, they chose to live where they live, and that's where I think a lot of the references to certain native tribes and stuff, they leave them alone. They just let them be. So uh, hopefully that helped answer that. <laughs> no, it did. It did. Um, can you tell the audience what is a storytelling event, and do you participate in any storytelling uh, events yes. around Oklahoma? That is majority of what I am invited to, um, is to uh, help MC, help lead, uh, and you know start the storytelling off. Storytelling, in a sense, is a tribal custom. Um, it is a it is a time in the evening where families were able to get together, and the elders of the family or the tribe would be able to tell stories of the old days, tell stories to help enlighten the younger generation to be more respectful to the earth and to the creator and, and to the animals. Um, one of the things though in tribal or in uh, storytelling with Bigfoot is people like to come to listen to the stories of Bigfoot. When we started the uh, storytelling at the Honabi Bigfoot conference and festival back in 2010, when when we kind of, when the organization had left, we, we had stepped in to help keep the conference going and we started a storytelling event. And so far that has been probably the most that most people come for. We actually have learned over the years by uh, organizing and leading the conference there in Honeby, we have found out that there's people that come specifically for the storytelling. Some people drive from different parts of Oklahoma just to come to the evening time for storytelling. They don't come to the conference. They don't come to the festival. So uh, the storytelling at the Delaware Nation uh, event in Anadarko, 
some of the events up in the Northeast. I've been uh, at some, you know, RSVP type style uh, storytelling where I've been asked to come by myself just to be there for the community, a tribal community, just to do storytelling. Um, storytelling is a good way for people that sit in the audience to see that other people are having these experiences. And sometimes when the storytelling's over, I will be approached by somebody that was in the crowd that did not feel comfortable with standing up to tell their story, but they'll tell me later in the evening what happened to them. So a lot of people I see and hear talk that the storytelling is kind of a, a, uh, it's a word I'm trying to find. It's kind of a, uh, uh, I don't know what the word I'm trying to find. Basically, that it helped them cope with what's happened to them because they've heard other people stand up and tell their stories. So there's a little mechanism there that helps people kind of cope with what they've had. And they realize other people have had the same experiences or something similar. So it's kind of a, um, a uh, I don't know what the word I'm trying to find. Uh, it's like when you have an issue and you go talk to a counselor and he helps you um, – there's a word I'm trying to find, but I can't, it's, it's escaping my mind. It's a, I, a closure or closure you know, it, it, or no. we, I have found storytelling is very good in a uh, personal sense. to a lot of people, cause it also, they get to hear other people again, you know, like I said, so I know that there's some the therapeutic, that's what a word I'm trying to find. There's some therapeutic aspects of storytelling because you can, you can look through the crowd when you're talking and see effect, you know, someone's face and realize that they've had an experience because they are honed in on you. They're listening to you. They're intently. And then a little bit later, you'll find out they want to talk to you. And when you get to talk to them, they've had an experience. So there's, there's some definitely a lot of pros when it comes to doing storytelling. Very good. Very good. Um, that is so interesting. We could go on and on about that, but I want to transition over. Uh, I want to talk about really quick. I want to talk about the Sasquatch Genome Project. You've been involved in that. Kind of describe your involvement in the Sasquatch Genome Project. Talk about uh, Zoo Bank and um, the word that has been come up for Sasquatch, um, the scientific term. Well, just tell um, us a little bit about. I was all introduced of that. to Dr. Melba Ketchum back in 2010. She was looking for an investigator in the Texas area that uh, she could, she could, you know, call upon to do field investigations because she was doing the lab work. She was, you know, she was running the lab, collecting the DNA. And the DNA had been going on prior to my introduction to her since 2005. Well, meeting her, getting to know her, and she asked me one day what I, you know, what do I, what do I know about the Bigfoot? What, what's my true heart? What do I think the Bigfoot are? And I said, well, there are people. They're a, they're a form of a people, but yet there's something about them that's unique because they have abilities. There's things that they can do that just defy science. And so I got to um, work with her through the years, handling some field investigations. She, you know, she would get wind of supposedly a skeleton or a body has been found on property. And then myself and some of the other, which is the no-bro investigators, Back then, I mean, we would we would go to these locations and investigate and 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 see if the claims are true. But through the years, you know, the the whole genome project, you know, had a lot of scrutiny 
because it, you're talking about science. Well, science is very hard to when you're trying to prove something that also has a extreme strong spiritual sense to it of who and what and where the Bigfoot come from. It, it, it's it's but the but the science don't lie. So you can't, you know, people try to try to um, debunk the science, but all in all, the end results are there's no way you can debunk three nuclear genomes. And, uh, you know, I don't want to get too scientific, but when you have a science project that has um, 102 samples sent out in a blind study to different labs across the country, and when the lab contacts you and says, hey, you've discovered a hominoid. What is this? And when she says, well, it's a Bigfoot sample. And they're like, well, you did it. You proved it. But, <clears throat> excuse me, the science just, you know, the science, you know, we could be here all day talking about the science aspect, but you cannot disprove three nuclear genomes. There's no way you can fake three nuclear genomes. So she went through the process of <clears throat> scientifically identifying you know, a scientific name. Well, GenBank is the human DNA that collects human DNA from around the world. Um, GenBank is the, the mega database of, of human DNA from, you know, the scientific side of it, from the Thanderol or, you know, however you say it, the, the DeSovo um, bones and a, the, the GenBank was accepted, but they, they, they denied her request. So Zubank, sadly, is the animal side of the DNA. <clears throat> well, we're not saying they're an animal, but what's interesting is the Zubank did award a scientific name for the three nuclear genomes and the DNA. But what's interesting is, is the name that they used to prove the existence of those three nuclear genomes and the DNA is what's called Homo sapien cognatus. Homo sapien cognatus translates into blood relative, which means they are a blood relative to the human, not saying they are human. They are a relative, which means they have certain aspects of their DNA that have human in their family tree, which is on the maternal side, the female side. So I, it's, I mean, we could be here all day. It's, we'll go into some heavy science for that, but <laughs> it's, some of it's over my head, but I've learned to know what it is uh, over the years. Uh, Dr. Ketchum has, has been patient with me and educated me a lot on, on what the science is, but you, you can't disprove three nuclear genomes. One nuclear genome is what it takes to prove something. Well, she has three. People can say all day long that the science is bad, but when you have a scientific name for it, uh, I mean, it's a closed book. It's over. It's done. She found it. So, Right. And I encourage the audience to uh, go just Google ZooBank, go to their website, type in the name Homo sapien cognatus. It's there. It says everything that you're telling us. I encourage the audience to just do that. I've done it, and it's uh, it's really cool. So check out ZooBank. I want to get in real quick before we go. we got a few minutes left here. I want to talk about the organization again, No Bro, as we call it. How does No Bro reach out to the public? Do you hold any public events? Well, 
Um, Tell us all about that. A lot of people reach out to me, uh, usually by third party. But what we try to do is through the years, we have um, a lot of events we've talked we've talked at and we've we've had some of our programs at and they they continue to call us back every year to come back and speak um our our sister organization which some of the guys we're all we're all family we're all in the the no bro organization but the in the nc the north canadian river project guys uh evans and kurt and everybody else that's uh you know that works in the ncrp you know we all tie together to help provide education that's we're, we're not out collecting samples the samples are already done we don't need dna you know a lot of people are interested in the cast so we have guys that you know that specialize in in casting prints you know mordecai and and some of his um expertise and such as yourself you know recordings video audio recordings but it's merely the education side of it you know we've we together our organization has probably about a hundred years plus experience between all of us. And we've all had different things happen. We all have different ideas and different mindsets. So the education is merely there to help other people understand what they've experienced. I mean, a lot of the stuff that we deal with is merely helping people come to grips with what they've seen and what they've heard. Um, We have not seen everything and we don't know everything. But what we do know is that that through what we do on the education side and helping people understand, we tend to come and make a lot of good friendships and get to know a lot of people. And through those people, there's other contacts that keep coming up. So our our Rolodex, so to speak, is is very vast. Um, just on my law enforcement side, you know, I, I do get a lot of calls from law enforcement uh, organizations that have things happen where they are kind of in an area of shying away from doing any type of investigation. And they usually pass it on to us so we can come in and help the landowner or help the person understand what may be going on. So it's, it's in that sense of merely of a lot of it's word of mouth, but people do contact us on our Facebook page and then they do send emails. All right, real quick, before we go into final thoughts, I want you to give a random strategy or tip to someone just starting out to Bigfooting or, or researching. Uh, what, what's like some random strategies or tips well, to help people you know, a lot of people out reach out to me and ask me, have I read this book? Have I watched that movie? Um, have I listened to this guy on podcast? Well, my days are spent because of my job. I'm, I'm very busy at my, at my job and it's not I'm saying that I'm not listening to these things, but what a lot of people, I had one person, this is where I'm kind of going towards this. We had a person come on an expedition several years ago, and they, at the end of the weekend, they had a lot of stuff happen. They actually got to see one at night cross, cross the trail in front of them, and they told me the next day, they said, hey, you know, I've read every book. I've tried to get every piece of material to, to learn about Bigfoot. And what they learned in that one weekend with us, we they learned more in that one weekend than they spent all those years reading the books and videos and watching shows and watching movies. And I said, well, it's nothing bad on the people that made those shows or wrote the books. It's just that a lot of that stuff, a lot of people that write books, they're not field researchers. They're taking other people's accounts. They're taking other people's information and writing a book. 
they don't have field experience. And that's not to say or negate anybody that does and does write a book. Most of our stuff is purely field, boots on the ground, out in the field doing it. And that's where we ask, you know, people that, that, that want to come on our expedition, they always ask, well, what do I need? What kind of book do I need before I come? I said, well, you don't, you can read any book you want. I'm not saying you don't, but what you learn is different than what you read. What you find out in the field is completely different than what you read in any of the books. My advice to people is, you know, if they're not able to come on one of ours, maybe go on another expedition with somebody. You know, we, I've had other people come on ours and, and they ask about other uh, organizations you can go on their expeditions and see how they are you know it's not a competition ours are not any better than theirs but we just we we tend to you know we we tend to go to an area where we know they are and they know they come down and and, and visit and or say visit but they come down and bluff charges and throw rocks and hoot and holler and smack on trees but the best thing of it is is just you know go to an area where there's been activity you know, sit in the dark and listen, you know, they're going to come visit you. You do not have to go look for them. If they are in the area, they're probably going to come and see what you're doing, but there's also a lot of keys. There's also a lot of tricks of the trade to know what to look for and what to listen for, because there's, you know, other than a very unpopulated area, which is very little, there's noises everywhere. So it's kind of hard to determine what is what when you're, when you're out there. Um, it, it just, it takes time. It takes time being out in the field to understand what noises belong to what, you know, is that an owl? Is that a bird? Is it someone shutting a car door, you know, half a mile away or something? So it's just, it's spending time in the field, getting to know your environment and getting to know what belongs and what, when what, and <laughs> getting to know what belongs and what don't belong. So There you have it, folks. We've been talking with Troy Hudson of the Native Oklahoma Bigfoot Research Organization. And now it's time for final thoughts. This is a time for you, Troy, to just give your final thoughts, maybe plug the No Bro Facebook page, websites, Kaimichi Mountains Adventures, the Honubi well, Conference. 2021. Go ahead. Final thoughts. We know a lot of states are opening up. Texas is opening up and Oklahoma will probably be opening up probably here in the future. And we're going to get out. We're going to have some more expeditions. And, and we're looking forward to the 2021 Honolulu Festival, Bigfoot Festival and, and Conference. And we hope to see everybody there. And, and we hope to, you know, get back into the expedition, the swing of things. And, you know, get a lot more people out in the field. And, and you know, we're, we're trying to grow, too, as an organization because we have a lot of reports. We have a lot of stuff comes our way. But we just don't have enough investigators to get out there and check some of these reports out because we're all busy. We all have, you know, our, our daily jobs and our lives. So one of the things, though, that we do provide training, we just don't take somebody on and throw them out in the field. They have to go through some training. Uh, there's some courses that, 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 you know, we provide. You know, our first one last year, we'll be doing another one this year, a basic investigators course um, that covers various interviewing techniques um, print, you know, uh, print casting, uh, and such as yourself, you talk about, uh, videography and photograph and audio equipment and how's the best way to get the, you know, the best pictures of evidence. Um, 
and we we just have a you know even working with drones you know when kurt comes in and just showing how drones are able to come in and help map out areas when we're looking for evidence and everything so that's uh that's about all i got right now very good very good so folks if you want to contact troy and the native oklahoma bigfoot research organization visit their facebook page give them a private message um, also, they do have a website. It is https colon slash slash sites dot google dot com slash site slash native OK Bigfoot research. Troy, thank you so much for coming on. And I hope you're not a stranger. I hope we can get you on here yes, again thank in you. the future. Thank you for having me. And you have a good evening, my friend. Thank you.